I've never fulfilled a very formulaic criteria of English beauty. You know, I'm dark, got hairy arms, I've got short legs, always had a big tummy. And I was, you know, lots of the girls at school were all kind of little fairies, blonde fairies, you know, sort of perfect looking little people. And maybe I just very early on, instead of being freaked out by it, just learned to cope with it by thinking, well, this is me. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. I am thrilled to be joined today by one of my career idols, Alexandra Shulman. Alexandra is a former British Oak editor, the longest standing editor in Vogue's history, and someone I've looked up to for many years. You may have thought that she had it all, but even the strongest of people are fighting their own battles. Today, I wanted to ask her about her life before Vogue how she felt when she was criticised for not looking like the stereotypical Vogue editor, and how she coped juggling both motherhood and an unstoppable career. I'm so grateful to Alex for opening up on this episode and for sharing her vulnerabilities, as it just proves how insecurities have an impact on all of us. So, um, as we all know that you were the former editor of British Vogue, and when you started, you weren't really classified as a typical stereotype of a a Vogue editor. So how does this impact your thoughts that you had about yourself and your own image? Well, I came to Vogue when I was 34, which at the time seemed quite young, but actually it wasn't. I'd worked in magazines for about 10 years by that time. I think I was really surprised to have people considering me in the light of whether I was a certain type of person or not a certain type of person. It wasn't really the way I'd looked at myself. And I wouldn't say that everybody said, oh, you know, you're a weird person to edit Vogue. Or, But a lot of people said, you don't look like I would expect somebody to be the editor of Vogue to be like. And, you know, I knew what they were talking about. So it wasn't that odd. I was a little surprised by it, but I wasn't upset by it. Which I think is quite unusual because a lot of women would take that and internalize it and think, oh God, I actually, maybe I'm in the fashion world. I should lose some weight. I should you know, conform to this ideal that people have in their heads of like a sort of an Anna Winter type, as it were. I'm going to be sitting on fashion front row seats and I'm going to be surrounded by models. And I think it's a real testament to your strength of character that you didn't let that affect you at all. It's definitely true that some people, you know, we all have different vulnerabilities. And I think I'm I'm very lucky that my sort of 
body image is not my area of vulnerability. I mean, I don't know why, but it just isn't. And, you know, it would have been nicer to be possibly slimmer. It would have been nicer to be able to think of oneself more as a kind of a great clothes horse, for instance, because one was always being offered clothes to borrow and people were looking at you. And I kind of wish I'd enjoyed that part of it more. But I mean, it just wasn't the thing that I enjoyed. And I always thought, well, there are so many people who are really good at this and who look really great. So I suppose in a way, my coping device was to just think I'm not going to participate in that. So rather than decide to compete and think, oh, gosh, well, I'd better lose, you know, however many kilos it would have been and try and dress a certain way. And I think I probably decided to deal with it by almost opting out of that area of competition. Yeah, and actually, in a way, it kind of can be a, quite a relief. You can focus on the job and not get consumed by that. The interesting thing was in terms of, I mean, you know, people listening to this, they've not really got any idea what I look like. But, you know, I'm five foot four and a size 12. It's not like I was a particularly extreme body size. I think what's interesting is that it, in most areas, that would have been completely normal. And I was surprised that journalists, it wasn't so much people in fashion. I don't know what they said but they weren't writing about me. But it was perfectly kind of average-sized female and male journalists who would interview me, who would always make that point. And I always found that really odd, because I thought, hold on, you know, you're not exactly Twiggy yourself when I read the piece. It is extraordinary, really, that people could even have the courage to mention it. When I came to Vogue, uh, my predecessor, had, uh, Elizabeth Tilberis, had been a fashion editor before she edited Vogue. And, you know, she'd worked in the industry for a really long time. And then Anna Winter was the editor very briefly for about a year only before Liz. But both of them were very embedded in the fashion industry. And I think when I was appointed, I was appointed as somebody who had no real experience within the fashion industry. I had a lot of experience in magazines, but not in the fashion business. And so I think this sort of grew up more because of that, which was somewhat very lucky for me, but possibly a bit extraordinary that I was given the sort of the biggest job in fashion journalism in this country. And I had not ever been to a woman's fashion show. I mean, I had been to male fashion shows because I went one season to Milan when I edited GQ. But that was my only experience. And so I think the sort of examination of my appearance was that if I'd been in the fashion business itself previously, I think people would have made less comments about it. I think it was more that I was a kind of outsider generally. And that kind of fed into your vision for Vogue, really, because you never really saw it as this sort of... A pure fashion yeah, magazine. Yeah. No, no, I didn't. But I also, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And that was hugely helpful. I mean, I think if I'd known how much I didn't know before I accepted the job. I might have been more nervous when I was in it. But I think I felt pretty confident of being able to edit Vogue, you know, to actually put together the magazine and deal with the writers and the staff and everything. I, I think I felt I knew how to do that. I've, you've spoken about the fact that as a child you were banned from eating potatoes at school. Your mum sort of said, oh, she's getting a bit podgy. I think she's overeating on that. Was it mashed potato that you particularly liked? No, we used to, went to, you know, 
posh girls primary school in Kensington and uh, you know there were long tables at lunch and I still remember the Pyrex bowls of mashed potato with the most lovely kind of melted butter in the middle on the top of them you know on the dining table and then one horrible moment when the headmistress came down and said Alexandra Shulman's mother says she can't have potato at lunch and it was a really odd thing for my mother to do and I think that even now well I think now she sort of thinks it's a little bit odd not quite as odd as it was but I just minded about not having the potato. I wasn't embarrassed about it. It is amazing because it just shows that there is obviously something going on in a girl who might have a predisposition to an eating disorder's brain where that would have triggered a whole exactly. spiral. Yeah, I quite agree. Um, and as you say, with the editorship of Vogue, you know, it just did not knock you off your perch because it just was not an issue in your mind. Yeah. I mean, we all have, as I was saying before, I think we have different mental vulnerabilities and food has never been mine I mean you know other than sort of you know I you know probably eat too much I eat for company and um, I find it just very enjoyable to eat something if I'm feeling kind of fed up or something but I don't have I haven't ever had the slightest of complicated attitude with food which again to almost a greater degree than a lot of people I know but also going on to your, you posted a picture of yourself when you were in India in your swimming costume, and all unknowingly, also Greece, where, where Greece, was it Greece was, yeah. And did that knock your confidence in any way? It went viral, but I mean, it was completely unintended to be anything of any moment or any interest to anyone, and it was just me in a bikini on holiday in Greece. And the reason why it was picked up was because I just left Vogue, and some people, mainly the commentators in the press I would say again here saw it as me trying to make some statement about sort of being free in some way of I don't know perhaps the confines of having to look like the editor of Vogue not sure what it was and then it then you know that's what drove it so I think there was something like 8,000 comments or something I mean an awful lot but mainly they were all incredibly nice and supportive and that didn't bother me at all. I mean, it makes me sound like I'm incredibly arrogant and that I think I look wonderful and I don't have any insecurities. It's actually not that. And in a way, I think it's partially having been a person who's never fulfilled a very formulaic criteria of kind of, you know, English beauty. You know, I'm dark, got hairy arms, I've got short legs, always had a big tummy, and I was, you know, lots of the girls at school were all kind of little fairies, blonde fairies, you know, sort of perfect looking little people. And maybe I just very early on, instead of being freaked out by it, just learned to cope with it by thinking, well, this is me. Yeah. And I think if you feel that sense of self-confidence, that level of self-acceptance, which I think one's parents can be largely responsible for kind of instilling a lot of that self-belief early on. And if you had other attributes and other strengths and actually you can focus on those potentially yes although I would say that my parents practically everything they did would actually go against the grain I mean so my dad for instance was very lookist or was when he was alive and you know made comments that now would be regarded practically as child abuse I should think you know and he'd always say things like oh my god Alexandra you've put on weight and you know no one will ever marry you if you don't stop eating so much he's Canadian my sister who was sort of more conventionally beautiful and slimmer he had much more admiration for the way she looked 
so you know I had that and I had my mum telling the school not to give me potatoes and the nannies not to give me biscuits and everything so really you know I had everything that should have turned me into somebody a terrible self body image and battles with eating disorders so I think parents can't be totally to blame for this but what they did do was they were very admiring and encouraging about other areas and I was always made to feel intelligent and clever and sociable and articulate and all of that so maybe that helps so you said that you suffered from a bit of a bout of anxiety in your early 20s what was that about that was when i had my first panic attacks and first really unable to function through anxiety I was at university, the uh, second year of university. I went to Sussex University and needless to say it sort of manifested itself most inconveniently in I not being able to be on my own and not being able to get on a train either. So I'd sort of come back home to be looked after and then I couldn't get there because I couldn't get on a train without somebody coming with me. So actually my parents then had to, you know, do penance for the no potatoes and endlessly get on trains back and forth from Brighton to get me to university. But yeah, that was the first time it happened. But there have been various other times. I mean, and these were bouts that went on months, not days or weeks. So I do know about panic more than anxiety, I would say. I didn't feel anxious. I felt terrified. And could you function? Could you get out of bed? Could you do your work at university? Not for a bit. I think that time I went to a therapist in London and he gave me various medication that did in the end get me through. It was quite a heavy caution those days. I mean, it was a long time ago. I mean, that was 40 years ago. And so the tranquilizers were quite dulling and you felt pretty leaden. I mean, I think I would say, you know, to anyone, what was so frightening is I didn't know what was happening. You know, I thought I was dying, actually. You know, I thought I got this thing the matter with me. I couldn't breathe. And, you know, and I think it's what everybody feels when they have very bad panic attacks. And, and for ages, nobody did seem to know what was the matter with me. And then my GP in London basically said, I think these are panic attacks. And, and it went on from that. But then I had another episode of it about 12 years later, and then another episode about another 10 years on from that. So I don't think it's something that I'd overcome entirely but I've learned I can manage it and how do you manage it medication a very very small amount of Prozac almost so little that it doesn't count but it does seem to make a difference and I think also you know just knowing knowing what it is but you know I've been around other people recently experiencing it and it's made me remember just how difficult it is and can you identify what the triggers are? In my case, I think the triggers are almost always when I feel trapped in something. I didn't want to go to university. And another time I was in a relationship that I kind of knew I had to get out of but couldn't get out of. And then the next time it was around the time that my marriage was breaking up. So there were, there were always, you know, looking back, there were always reasons for it. But I think now... I know the people to see, I know what you can take, I can do all of the, the breathing and the this, that and the other. But that icy terror is very, very frightening for people. 
Yeah. And I think it's really interesting all these alternative methods of help now. So breathing, for example, I mean, things like yeah, breath work, practical tools that one can use and like coping strategies and sort of writing and externalizing and like visualization. I always found when I was really having panic attacks that I got too panicked to breathe. It's just like that. That was why I mean, could use it as a kind of maintenance thing and all those things like writing and I think it's really helpful to keep um, diaries so you can try and check all the triggers that might be making things happen but I just do kind of remember you know when I having them that just trying suddenly trying to breathe you just can't breathe you're just kind of thinking it's like oh it's good to stay alive and you can't sort of start to slow down your breathing. I just want to take a quick moment to say a big thank you to my wonderful sponsor, Bowdoin. Bowdoin is a British brand that has championed uplifting, eclectic British style since it was founded 31 years ago. Perhaps it's time to add to your collection this autumn with some new knitwear, maybe with a modern twist such as a puff sleeve. I've just indulged in a new ultra soft cashmere, which I can honestly tell you I'll be living in this winter. But what I love most about the brand is that they've always championed women from a variety of different backgrounds and seek to inspire them to enjoy a life well lived, which is exactly what I'm aiming to do with my podcast. Head to Bowden.com to check out their new autumn collection or to their Instagram at Bowden underscore clothing. So how did you cope with having a child when you were working? Because I mean, being a single mum and holding down a pretty high, well, an incredibly high powered job must have been challenging Um, well Sam does have a father Paul and so for you know big chunks of time I wasn't completely on my own with him I was on my own with him quite a lot because he went to live abroad for quite a lot of the time and also I just had Sam I had the setup so you know like many mothers and I mean Paul would see him you know every other weekend or whatever and a Wednesday night was Normal thing. So I I had the lion's share, but only because, I mean, I really wanted it. And I also had my stepdaughter who came to live with us when Sam was born and we got married and my stepdaughter was 12. She came to live with us and she stayed on with us, with me, when my husband moved out. And actually that was really helpful because I felt like we had a kind of unit, seemed more like a proper family unit than if it had just been me and Sam. I can't really explain why, but that was was very helpful. You know, I had nannies. I was able to employ full-time live-in nannies who I, I couldn't have done it without them. They were all pretty well, all without exception, just these really nice, cheerful young women who were passing through UK on their travels. They stayed with us for about a year. They looked after Sam, you know, during the week. And I looked after him on the weekends and whenever I wasn't out in the evenings and holidays and things. But there are moments which are very difficult if you've got a big job. In the main, it, it was the kind of the best therapy for the job because, you know, one, I always wanted to come home and see Sam. Two, the demands that a child impose on you just negated the demands of the magazine the second I was back in the house 
So I find it really helpful because I was able to switch off and be with Sam and I was didn't worry about the magazine when I was looking after him. And I didn't worry about Sam when I was doing the magazine. So I think, again, an ability to compartmentalise has been something I've been quite fortunate. But I structured my life very rigidly. Was it lonely at times, being editor of Vogue? Very rarely. Maybe very occasionally when I had some very difficult decision to make and I couldn't talk to anybody at all in the office about it. But most sort of dilemmas, there would be somebody I could share with there. I had, you know, a lovely staff who were very supportive, a lot of them. We all were quite supportive sort of as human beings to each other. You know, a lot of us had children. A lot of people had kind of complicated love lives. You know, there was all this kind of thing. It wasn't like there was no sympathy or empathy for for other people. But I don't think I did find it lonely at the top. It just wasn't the way I looked at it. Which is interesting because, I, you know, you are quite a formidable presence and I can imagine some for some employees that might have been quite intimidating and therefore had it like a knock-on effect. Yeah you don't know do you what other people thought of you or think of you I mean I you know I do sort of know a bit because people would kind of mob me about it and so so I can't have been that terrifying otherwise they wouldn't have teased me about it but you know I think people thought that you know often I would be sort of quite grumpy and moody and I sort of really tried not to impose moods on people but you know I've always it's like my family used to joke you know the sort of Siberian gloom coming down on my face and I do I think I do bring the weather with me into a room you know I'm aware of that but I also think that everybody did say they knew where they were with me and you know I wouldn't sort of mess them around I would tell them the truth and I think people trusted me but you know sometimes it's just so tiring and relentless people asking things of you all the time and so you know you do sort of put up a kind of barrier just in order to slightly think I hope not another person's going to come in and ask me a question (laughs) if I look really grumpy maybe they won't come in yeah, I mean, you have to be, I mean, you do have to be very thick skinned. And as you said, your ability to compartmentalize, it's absolutely mm. essential. You wouldn't survive five minutes. In a well, many, like many people couldn't and many people have really difficult times and have just not been able to do it because they found that the pressure that they felt to be something that they weren't entirely comfortable with has been very undermining and difficult for them. That's what I think most about magazines. I mean, I know a over the years, a lot of people, and some of them didn't survive, literally killed themselves through that almost creating a fake persona that in the end you couldn't fall back on. And I think I would say that that what perhaps was my greatest help was and most fortunate thing is having real family and friends who had nothing to do with my work. And that's not easy to have if you don't stay in the same place where you've been brought up. You know, I was brought up in London and my friends are all in London and actually my family's still all in London. I think that's really, really helpful is being able to keep your kind of roots very apparent to yourself. Yeah, and very grounding. Um, And so it gives you a reality check, doesn't it? It keeps your head sort of... Well, I think it makes you feel safe because, you know, if you don't have roots, then what are you? You're flailing around. And that safety, I think, I mean, from listening to you, obviously, I'm not a trained therapist, but 
it's that feeling of safety that obviously stemmed mm. from your early childhood that you you had inherent in you and it sounds like that sort of over time has translated into your ability to sort of compartmentalize and have this sort of the mental resilience to cope with a lot of stuff you cope with. Yeah, the interesting thing though is that it's a subject that's slightly relevant just because of various things within my sort of family group over the recent years. That actually the odd thing is, is that the area that all of us who have and the number of us have suffered from sort of panic disorders, the area that we've all sort of had problems with is transport is going anywhere and slight agoraphobia so it's like getting on in cars or trains or planes you know and when one tries to analyze why that is that feeling that you're only safe at home I've never been able to get to the bottom why that is because I'm not sure that that means oh well your home was so safe because if your home was so safe and perfect you ought to be able to function better being away from it yeah. yeah I really want to hear your involvement, your current involvement in the size zero sort of debate and campaign and post Vogue, sort of what you're doing around that. Mm. Well, when I was at Vogue, I made, you know, I, I reckon that my contribution in a way, the things that I felt most passionately about in terms of sort of well-being, I suppose, was this idea of trying to encourage the fashion industry to engage more with people who weren't, as it were, size zero or even size one or size two, and to try and encourage them to have a more diverse representation of body types, which I would say, you know, I had very limited success with. I mean, now, 15 years on, I guess it's beginning to happen. But I think I was like the only person that was making a fuss about the fact that you could only get sample sizes the size of the catwalk model. So when you, you know, you couldn't employ a model, you know, a size 10 wouldn't be able to get into the sample sizes, let alone somebody who wasn't a model who you wanted to photograph in fashion. So one of my, the things that, you know, and I still really care about this is is trying to make people of all, not just shapes, but actually all kind of professions able to participate in fashion. and. I was writing about it today. I mean, it's not to do with size, this at all, but saying how, you know, how wonderful, how amazed I was to see the lionesses with their kind of immaculate makeup on the pitch and these incredible manicures and, you know, wonderful eyeliner and like their ponytails, no hairs ever came out or anything. And how extraordinary that was. And it's not me trivializing their incredible athletic achievement. But it's me saying it's so great that, that you can be, they are role models who show you can be these incredible athletes working in this area that previously people really were only interested in men doing. But at the same time, you can really care about your manicure. And I think that for a long time, it's been very hard to, I mean, I'm less kind of now really involved in sort of body size than I am in the idea that to try and encourage women to feel that they can be interested in beauty and fashion and also be anything that they want to be. Because for a long time, you could the only people you could see who kind of looked really sort of great through the eyes of a teenage girl would be, you know, a pop singer, a film star, a model. You never saw images of an engineer or a scientist or a politician who showed 
in any way that connection. So that's something I'm really, really interested in. And, you know, and I think it is changing now, definitely. Again, it's really changing. You know, I think young women now are becoming so much more aware of the fact that they can be anything, actually, and they can look any way on one level. And then on the other level, you've then got this huge kind of pressure from things like Instagram having to conform to certain stereotypes. So I don't know. You can argue it every which way, I think. And it's that sort of feeling of, yeah, needing to do everything perfectly. And I think that's another thing that feeds into Mm. what we were talking about earlier, about this immense pressure that everyone feels now because it's not good enough just being good at one thing. It's You've got to be the master of everything. Mm. So one final question that may be a bit controversial, but I'm fascinated to hear your views on the new regime at Vogue and what direction you think it's heading in and what you think the future of magazines is. I can talk about the future of magazines. I can't talk about what I think about Vogue because it just isn't fair to, I think, judge what somebody does. I mean, what I will say is that in every area, when somebody takes over, they want to do something different. And I think my Vogue, I kind of really wanted to make it more about for kind of real women than my predecessor's Vogue. And I think I will say that, you know, I think Edward feels that his Vogue is more diverse than my Vogue and that's been his his bag. But, you know, I can't really judge. I mean, I listen, I buy it and I really enjoy looking at it, but I can't be a kind of really make judgments about it. As far as magazines are concerned, the concept of a magazine, I think, is, is fine, is thriving. Print magazines are obviously a more endangered species. But I quite interested in the idea that I think there's a lot of room for kind of niche publications that don't cost a fortune to put together and that can engage a very specific audience. I think general interest magazines are harder to survive at the moment, although news magazines are doing rather have, have a, I don't know what they're doing now, but in the past few years, things like The Economist or The Week or I know the New Statesman's doing very well. So text publications seem to be doing quite well, with the exception of print newspapers, oddly. Are you currently writing a new book? So I write for the Mail on Sunday. I do a notebook, well, in theory, every Sunday, um, where I can just write little bits about what I want. And then I'm writing some sort of more fashion-oriented pieces for them and for the Mail that I'm trying to find a book to write. And my last book, Clothes and Other Things That Matter, came out when the pandemic, literally as the pandemic hit. So all the bookshops were closed, all the festivals were closed. So I feel like I really want to have a book which I can just sort of let fly, you know. But that book was was sort of memoir, but also how clothes, social observation about how we feel about different items of clothing and what they represent. And I've got lots of ideas, but I haven't yet found the device. So that book was about clothes, but I don't want to write another book so purely about clothes. I haven't quite worked out the framework. Well, it was, you know, I've read your book. It was thoroughly enjoyable and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Um, And I can't wait for the next one. Yeah, I can't wait to, (laughs) I can't wait to come up with the idea. Um, you will no doubt because you're incredibly talented and um, I can't thank you enough for your time thanks for having me and good luck with the series thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast I'd love for you to subscribe to the show 
or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission.